the first time and the, the, the last time we did Drinks with Tony was for the book The Bones. And what year was that? I'm trying to remember. That was 2005. We were in Vesuvio's in San Francisco, and now we're on uh, sunny Hillhurst Avenue in Los Angeles. Look at us. <laughs> Big time famous writer dudes. <laughs> Unbelievable. I totally forgot to do the intro. Hey, you're listening to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne. Today on the show, we have Seth Greenland. He's the author of The Hazards of oh, yeah, the Hazards of Good Fortune. Let's, let's say it again when the motorcycle isn't roaring by. The Hazards of Good Fortune. The Hazards of Good Fortune. And uh, Angry Buddhist, Bones. And Bones was what I interviewed you for. That was your yeah, first we book? talked about the Bones. Then I wrote uh, Shining City, The Angry Buddhist, I Regret Everything. And now, uh, which was the title of the fourth book, not my opinion of the first three. <laughs> and then The Hazards of Good Fortune, which is what we're going to talk about today. I'm Seth Greenland, the author of The Hazards of Good Fortune, and you are listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show! Yeah. I actually used I Regret Everything in my, uh, when I was teaching at the UCLA classes as um, point of view, as an example of point of view changes. I just remembered that. You flatter me. Tell me more. And then <laughs> I said, you should just see how he walks. He has such great swagger. Well, we should, we should say that, that it's, it's told from two different perspectives, that of a 19-year-old young woman and a 33-year-old guy, and it's in alternating chapters, each in the first person. So not a bad choice for point of view for the kids at UCLA. Well, speaking of point of view, I'll go, I'm going to go around and around. But um, this book, the, point, the third person, and then how you drop in on the characters in such a close way. I, would, I really like this book. I haven't finished it, but I really, really like it. I mean, it's, it's a breezy read. There's just there's so many elements to it. I feel like it's your best book. I don't know if you feel the same way or not. You know, They're All My Children, I think, is the cliche, and the last one I finished is always the best one. But, but I have to say, this is, this is probably, in my own humble opinion, yeah, this is probably my best book. There, there's something about it, because I know you've done a lot of TV and screenwriting, and it feels like you took the, the best, which is not a lot of the best, of that type of dropping us into character, and, but, but you slowed it down, so it was like a nice, it, it, I don't know, the pacing was just perfect. I don't know how to, I'm going to gush all over you. I should put my pants back on, because this, this would be embarrassing, but yeah. Um, Patio, Tony, on Hillhurst, and your pants are around your ankles, and I'm embarrassed. I'm embarrassed, and I think you should pull your pants up before we continue the interview. All right, give us a second here, and we'll put our pants on. You're listening to Drinks with Tony. <laughs> oh, my pants are on. No hashtags for me. Up come the pants. Let's resume. So what I was trying to do, to get back on the literary road here, uh, I wanted to I wanted to write a sprawling story, but not sacrifice psychological acuity. So there are a lot of characters, but I tried to grant the major ones, and there are quite a few major ones in the Hazards of Good Fortune. I tried to grant them their interiority and really stay with them psychologically. So while there's a narrative motor, or several narrative motors actually, that keep pushing the book forward and that all converge in the final section, what I was trying to do was uh, honor each individual character and uh, you know 
create a book that was not only complex in terms of plot, but have the characters who were enacting that plot be rendered in as psychologically a complex way as possible. When you're, when you're approaching this, do you approach characters first or do you have a plot in mind first? I had an area in mind. I wanted to write about what was going on socially in, this is going to sound really pretentious, but I wanted to write about what was going on socially in America in 2012, which is when the book was set, and that was kind of a precursor to exactly what's going on six years later. And from there arose my main character, Jay Gladstone. And uh, as I worked on him, other characters and situations developed like spokes from a wheel, and uh, I wrote this novel over about a seven-year period, not working on it all the time, but I started working on it and working on the character, and then I wrote another book while I was working on this book, and then went back to this book, and it took a long time to come together because it's, uh, it's a complicated book in terms of composition, but I don't think it's complicated in terms of a reading experience. Well, that's, that's, an, that's interesting because I don't think people realize when something feels like an easy, breezy read, those are the most difficult books to really get down on paper. Yeah, because for, for a book like this, which is not a short book by any means, you know, I cut a lot out. And it's, it's tricky when you do something with this kind of scope because in a way the work is like that of a movie director who points the camera and tells you exactly where to look by virtue of where the lens is pointed. And when you're writing a book with this much going on and this many characters, it's always uh, very tricky to decide exactly on whom to function, and uh, rather on whom to focus, and when to go with them, when to go back to another person, when to bring your main character back in, how far afield you can get from your main character, and how to orchestrate the entire thing. And it's, it's symphonic, I guess, uh, is, a, is a good metaphor to torture at this point, probably. And you know, you're composing for the piccolo and the tuba and the bass and the clarinet and the saxophone and the violins and the violas and the cellos and the drums and all those things. And when do you want to hear what notes? And so it's very hard to write a book like this quickly, which is why I couldn't do it. You've utterly exhausted me just talking about <laughs> Yeah, it was, it, was, it was an involved process, and of all my books, it was the hardest one to write. You know, yeah, when I wrote The Bones, when I was starting out as a novelist, the first one I wrote, you know, I wrote the draft that became The Bones, which was not short. The draft was about 500 pages long. It was a 400-page book in the end. I wrote it in six months, and the rewriting didn't really take very long. I took another month or two to rewrite after I got notes, and that was it. So the whole process was, you know, eight months or so. It was less than a year and quick and I thought that's how it would be and of course it was never that fast again and on this one you know I really took my time because I was swinging for the fences I was writing a big ambitious book and I knew it had to be right and I knew I couldn't rush and uh, and I didn't and here we are and I think ultimately well, I'll let you know readers and reviewers decide if it was successful but but I was satisfied with how it turned out what's interesting if you have something going on for seven years is you're, you're learning as a writer and becoming a better writer every year. So was, was there a, was when, you know, at the, at the first pass at it or during the early days, was there a lot of changes? Because you're like, wait, 
I, I, I can do this so much better now. I don't know. I for, for some odd reason, I feel like I'm a better writer every day, and that's self-delusion on every single level. But No, I don't, I don't think it's self-delusion. I think, I think we do keep improving if we're paying attention. The, but we, we're always back to the blank page and left to our own devices. And when we say we're better, in a way, it's, it's easy to think we're better when what we're doing is accumulating more tricks. And, and what I've learned in doing this now for, uh, you know, I've been doing this, I guess, 13, 14 years, writing, writing novels. And what I've learned is to slow down and to really pay attention to the character's psychology. And that's become much more important to me. Because when I started out as a writer, I remember taking a course when I was a kid in my 20s. I took a course in playwriting. And I was very focused on the plot, just moving people through the space and giving them a task and having an obstacle and very, very basic. And and I, I came to it from a, a, the point of view that, well, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to deal with a situation. And I have a situation. And then I would figure out who the characters were. And now I've come to it from a completely opposite place because the way the Hazards of Good Fortune evolved was, you know, I said I said I wanted to write thematically, you know, five minutes ago, but what I really wanted to do was write about a character. And I had a character, and that was where I worked from. And and it was, for me, it's the most satisfying way to work because if you're writing this, this kind of fiction, you know, you're spending so much time with your guy or with your woman that, you know, you've really got to be fascinated by who they are, their, their levels of psychology, uh, why they're doing what they're doing, and you need to approach it with an incredible amount of acuteness. Because to me, that's fascinating. You know, it's why I like talking to people, because they reveal things about themselves, and there's nothing more interesting to me than just having a conversation and being able to ask questions and find, finding out about how someone works. And that's why I'm drawn to writing fiction more so than writing you know television and films for example which i enjoy doing but it's nowhere near as satisfying as fiction writing because fiction writing is more human ultimately this you brought up something that kind of came to me this last year um and it's because i'm so fascinated with working on characters and what they do in those situations and as we get to learn our characters we learn that they have less choices because of what we've made them learn from what they previously said. Well, it comes down to free will. You know, if you create your character really, really uh, in, in a layered way where you're building from who their parents were, who their grandparents were, where they were raised, where they went to school, who their friends were in high school, what kind of stuff they read, what kind of music they listened to, what their jobs were, how their career progressed, what their disappointments were, where their successes were, what their romantic entanglements were, whether or not they had children and if that was a choice, all these things, ultimately, they will tell you by the way you know them what they will do because at a certain point they lack free will, as all of us do on some level. Really, we think we have free will, and to a degree we do. I mean, for example, I could choose where I parked before I walked over to the cafe that we're sitting at. But in larger ways, we lack free will because of everything that has comprised our lives leading up to this moment. We'll get back to that in a second. Where did you park? I parked a block from here, and I said I had, I had no free will, frankly, because it was the only space I could get after looking for 10 minutes. <laughs> so after my big speech about free will and parking, I'll just totally contradict it. <laughs> But it, so what I've compared that to is also like my friends and people I know um, when they have conflict or when we have conflict, how we uh, respond to the conflict ourselves or with other people, it's always way less 
stakes than like a novel or a film. But it shows character. We have like character, and that's exactly what we're doing in the books too. Yeah. I, I, well, also, in, just in terms of personal relationships, I think, I think writing novels has enabled me to navigate my, my life in a way better way than I was able to before because I have an understanding of people that was was intuitive before but now has become much more specific and, and rigorous in the sense that what I do all day is sit around and try to understand a character psychology and when you can use those tools in your interpersonal relationships it's a it's a way to get through the world with uh, a lot less bumping yeah. into things you know um. And, and how so you, it was like a 10 minute walk here from where you parked or was it a <laughs> we're really we're really focused on the parking I'm kidding yeah, yeah, yeah. it was uh, well the good, the good thing is I count my steps so in a, in a, in a, yeah of course I mean no I have an app that does it but oh, I, I don't okay. count in my head no that would be OCD but you know I'm trying to get my 10,000 for the day so it, uh, it definitely helped parking where I parked um, but yeah it's I am going back to you know what we're really talking about here I've just found it intriguing that if I don't write I'm not, if I'm not writing, I'm like a bad person. I'm not really like good to be around. And it's almost like I have to write in order to keep my medication coming in. And I don't know if that's... Yeah, well, it's, you know, for me, it's, you know, I feel like it's, it's kind of like being a, a carpenter, a cabinet maker in a way, where you're happiest making cabinets. You know, it's something you know how to put together. There's satisfaction in the craftsmanship. And I take great comfort in that. And, you know, when I'm working on a project, you know, I'm, I'm, which is virtually all the time, you know, I, I have my schedule and I sit down and I build my cabinet every day. I work on the cabinet and at the end of it, uh, you know, I've got a wall unit. And then I send it to my agent and uh, we're off to the races. And I, I, speaking of, because when we last interviewed, I guess it was 2005. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Wow, it's just crazy. We could go on. We could be here for hours talking about what's happened in between, but for both of us, I'm sure. <laughs> no, no need to do that. Yeah, exactly. Let's just forget the, the memory. The losing of memory sometimes is great, but um, I totally lost my thought because now I'm in an emotional spot. <laughs> you know, mem memory is such a funny thing, and how we choose to. I think, at a certain degree, choose. I think, to a certain degree, we choose to remember what we remember, and. It, I don't know if does it worry you that you've forgotten great swaths of your life. Yes, and then at the same time, I um, it sometimes sometimes it worries me that I'm changing the narrative uh, to make me the better guy in the situation. And because I've noticed that people do that, where I go, I know both sides of this story, and wow, you're making this really, really high on yourself. And then I'm like, oh, crap, am I doing that when I do that? I don't know. Well, you know, we do what we do to survive psychologically. But I think the older we get and the, the more we sit with ourselves, I think the, the easier it becomes to ascribe blame to oneself. Is that what it is? I th well, for me, yeah. certainly. I mean, when I look back over my life at this point there are certain things where I f tended to perhaps uh, lay the blame for conflict on another person and didn't own my part of it and I think that has changed as I've gotten older and part of it has to do with having been married for a long time actually because to survive in a marriage you need to you need to own your shit really or it becomes wildly dysfunctional so so I've gotten very good at owning my shit I think I, I have my wife to thank for that also I should say my wife is a meditation teacher and that has helped me 
in in marriage and in life, actually, because I meditate, and of course that's uh, that's a handy tool. We actually talked about that the first time we interviewed, because now because um, in when you were in New York, you were diagnosed with uh, you, they, you thought you were going to die, right? Is that I thought there. Well, I had stage four lymphoma. Uh, it was very it was advanced, and uh, my uh, prognosis was a little dicey. Yeah, at the time, and uh, here we are, all these years later. Yeah. So, um, and, and then I, if I remember right, we we talked about your wife being in the meditation and uh, pursuing that, and that really intrigued. Yeah, and that it, it helped tremendously. Also, I should say I've been cancer-free 25 years, so I don't want anybody worrying about me. But yeah, my wife was a, an attorney, and uh, in early early in the aughts, she began teaching children at the Boys and Girls Club of Santa Monica how to meditate. She devised games which enabled her to teach children how to meditate. And she's since meditate rather than Medicaid. And she's she's since become, you know, kind of a guru in this area. And she's published a couple of very successful books. She lectures all over the world and um, she's become a big shot. And it's it's helped me tremendously because I uh, you know, I had tried to meditate earlier in life, and I was a complete failure at it. But because of, uh, of Susan's ability as a teacher, she, uh, you know, she became my teacher, and, uh, and now I find that it's a, it's a significant part of my life. And it helps my writing process, actually, because what I find in Los Angeles, where I live, is that uh, it's hard sometimes to clear my head between the environment in LA when you get out in your car and have to drive around between the access to the internet and all that kind of thing. I find often that I do my, my more naturally clear thinking when I'm not in Los Angeles, when I'm traveling, when I'm not surrounded by all this day-to-day -day stimuli. And I find meditation in a way when I'm here allows me to clear things up in a way that I can, I, I have that space then that allows me to work better when I'm at my desk. So it's been it's been a good thing. Uh, do you how how long do you meditate and is it just like a, a silence type meditation? Yeah, I do I do a silent meditation usually on a cushion sometimes walking uh, for about twenty minutes and what I do is kind of vipassana based, which means I I it's it's metacognitive. I watch my I sit there and I count my breaths and invariably thoughts arise and. As the thoughts arise, you try not to get attached to the thoughts, and you observe them, and you watch them, and pretty soon they'll leave, and you count another few breaths, and another thought will arise, and it's an endless conveyor belt, and there's a, there's a misconception that meditation is about emptying your mind. It's frankly impossible to empty your mind if you're a human being in the modern world. So what I try to do is not get attached to the idea that my mind should be empty, but rather get to a point where I can watch what's going on, and I do that for 20 minutes. That's great. When I was so, I, so when I was a kid, I had a teacher. I just I'm just remembering this. This is a therapy session for me okay. too, and, and, for, and for free. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, in seventh grade, I had a drama teacher, and she had us meditate. And in the Jehovah's Witnesses, meditation is demonism as far as they're concerned. So, I was scared to death that the demons were going to come. And it took me until I it took me until about ten years after I left, where I could meditate in a yoga session. But I still had panic attacks while meditating until I finally stopped having the panic attacks. Just from that weird programming as a kid. Well, you know, you had a lot of religious dogma laid on you yeah. when you were a kid. And that kind of thing can take a lifetime to escape. And on some level, when you have that kind of background, one way or another, you, the rest of your life becomes about 
finding coping mechanisms to deal with that stuff. And that happens to all of us because, you know, I have a theory that I think half of us are recovering from unhappy childhoods and the other half are recovering from happy childhoods. You know, by which I mean if you had a happy childhood, you're kind of led to think the world is going to go a certain way for you. And, of course, that's really not the way the world works for most people. So you, one needs to develop strategies to deal with whatever comes along the pike, regardless of, of what your background was. So when you talk about having panic attacks, panic attacks when you meditate, yeah, I, 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 I'm very sympathetic to that. I think you should write about it, frankly, and thrilled to hear that you worked through them and can now sit and not have that happen. Because anybody who's listening to this who has anxiety, I th which is, a lot, you know, God knows, many, many, many people, uh, I, meditation is a great way to deal with it. And don't be fearful yeah. about sitting with your anxiety. Yeah. yeah, just call it anxiety. And why I brought that up, because it comes back to the point of what, what I love what your wife's doing, because she's getting kids mindful at an age when they, they can, by the time they get to their 20s and they're starting to deal with heavy stuff of life, they are going to have tools to work through it. No, that's exactly right. I mean, you know, for example, it occurred to me when I was I showed up at the post office one day and it was around the holidays and it was a really long line and I saw it was going to take forever, but I had to stay. I couldn't, I couldn't leave. And I remember standing in the line just waiting and it was one of those grinding things, kind of like, you know, the DMV experience. And because I new meditation techniques, I was able to relax into that, and it wasn't that I all my annoyance vanished, but I was able to manage it in a way that was much easier than it would have been years earlier before I had any idea how any of this stuff worked. You know, for lines and DMV and such for me, are now they, they now become just my office, because I always bring my work with me, so I always pull out my work and I'm working on stuff until like, I tell my students, I'm like, you never have to wait in line again because a line means you get to work. Well, for writers, you know, waiting is a gift in a way. You know, you've just got to be attuned to what you're doing and be able to focus. And I mean, this is the last thing I'm going to say about meditation because I don't want the whole chat to be about that. But it's a fantastic way of maintaining focus, of learning, of, of really training focus doing it daily. It's like going to the gym for your mind, in a way. And it helps tremendously with writing. Speaking of meditation... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> Enough with the meditation. Jeez. I don't even meditate. I'm just bullshitting for the interview. You're on your third Jaeger shot right now. Oh, please. At 10 a.m. Yeah, I drink. Like a writer. You didn't believe any of that, did you? Oh no, no. We'll we'll, we'll cut all, we'll cut the uh, we'll cut the honest part out of it. Yeah, cut all that meditation stuff. <laughs> no, no. I'm cutting this part, and then we'll put the meditation in there. Then people will think we're like nice guys. Yeah, we don't we don't want that. Okay. It's interesting. So you worked on the book for seven years. Yeah. And so, something notable happened in 2016, where all of a sudden the world shifted. Yeah, you know, we were saying earlier before we got on mic that Trump got elected. And, of course, to discuss storytelling in the age of Trump, it, it's, it's such a horror show what's going on now in the country for so many of us that to write fiction set today that ignores that is it's impossible, really. And I didn't really want to write about Trump, so I set the book in 2012 against, against the, uh, the re-election of President Obama. 
oh, I just love saying those words, President Obama. I feel like we should just say that five times in a row. That's, the, that's, a, that's a meditation. Uh, There's a different one. It's my mantra, actually. Uh, but I said it against the re-election of President Obama because one of the themes that the book is about is race and race relations and what's going on in America with regard to that. So 2012 seemed a, a particularly fecund time in which to write about it. And the book specifically is set a few months after Trayvon Martin was murdered, and, and that's referenced in the book. And, and then going back to the different themes of the book, you really, really bring us into the, um, the, the, the lives of like how people deal with race and how people deal with their own prejudice, and even uh, Jay, where he's just like, it's like no, wait, I'm not racist, and how, how, but the, how they, how everybody copes with it. You do it on every angle, which yeah. was great. Well, thanks. We, we should say the main character's name is Jay Gladstone, and he's he's the scion of a real estate family in New York, a very wealthy guy, a philanthropist, basically a good guy. He owns an NBA team, does something that's interpreted as racist, and his life unravels. And he is very reflective about uh, the idea of race, and was a as a kid fascinated by black American culture and to call someone, he feels to, to call me racist, this is Jay Gladstone, is, is the worst insult imaginable because whatever the opposite of racist is, that's what he thinks he is. So it's, it's the worst thing anybody could, could say about him. And of course, in, today, in 2012, is very like today in this sense, if, if you find yourself saying, I'm not a racist, you've already lost the conversation. And that's, that's where we are culturally now. And that's one of the things the book is about, which is once, once someone is, is, uh, has their character maligned in public, it's very, very difficult to recover from that. And that's, I think, a, a, a kind of a major theme for American life right now. It's a theme in the book, obviously, but it's something that we're all dealing with in a sense. And it's one of the things that's really, uh, it's really crippled our society in a way and crippled relations between people. And the internet, of course, has acted as an accelerant, and it's all—it's uh, all a horror show right now around this subject. That's why people need to read books, because then they can read a book like this, and they can get the sense of the many different characters and what's empathetic and how to. Well, you used a word there that that I love, which is empathetic. And for me, one of the great gifts of fiction is these these novels that we write are empathy machines, in a sense. And they're you know one person at a time locks in, as opposed to watching a movie where you're doing it with a group of people. It's you and the book and you know the author and and you're you're being given, you know, privileged access to the psychology of these characters and their lives. And it's if you're you're open to the experience, you can learn a tremendous amount, obviously. I mean this sounds like stuff you tell a, a middle schooler and it's but it's it's very basic, it's very real and it's very real for sophisticated readers. And one of the reasons I, I continue to to privilege the novel over all the other art forms is because it gives me insights in human psychology that nothing else can provide. And what I was trying to do with the Hazards of Good Fortune was to practice that kind of writing. And, you know, uh, again, I'll leave critics and readers to decide where I landed on the continuum, but those are the writers I most admire, those who, you know, reveal what it is to be human at, at the deepest level. Now, I'll be honest with you here, because I haven't been honest at all through this whole... You know. <laughs> Why do you? Why do I have to preface that? Dude, I don't I know. Wished you, I wish you would warn me. <laughs> um, when I read the, when I read, the, <clears throat> I don't know if it was uh, the, the the publicity or the, or the book jacket about Jay. Um, I was like, I don't know how the hell I'm going to connect with this guy because of 
who he is. Am I really going to get this guy? And then I'm, I, you brought me totally into a character I never thought I would be totally into. I really, really appreciate hearing that. And what what I was trying to do was really go against the grain here because the, my main character is a billionaire. And these days, you know, billionaires are generally not very popular people. And I thought, uh, however, they control a lot of our world in many ways. And, you know, their decisions and their, their likes and dislikes drive. I mean, look at the Koch brothers. You know, the Koch brothers drive the entire, you know, a significant portion of the political conversation in America. So... Like it or not, people with a lot of money are driving the culture, the politics, the country in a very significant way. So for me, the challenge in writing the book and why I wanted to do it, and this was very against the zeitgeist, because if I wanted to write a book that a million people were going to love, I would have written about somebody who was aspirational. But I thought the challenge is give, give this guy his interiority. Really go for it. Really do a forensic take on this character, make people feel for him. The way, you know, you look back to Shakespeare, for example, you know, Shakespeare was writing about kings and queens and royalty, and and those were the stories that the the groundlings were, were fascinated by and wanted to hear about. And the age of kings and queens is over to a degree in terms of storytelling. I mean, sure, The Crown is popular on Netflix, but by and large, if I was telling somebody how to write a popular book, I would not say write a book about a rich guy. But this was a story I wanted to tell. I thought I could write about society through his eyes. And also, I should say that the book has a lot of characters. They're not all rich. We we see, you know, like like, you know, Dickens, it's, you know, chimney sweeps and and rich swells and I write about everything in between so the, the book is a uh, it's, it's a very broad canvas that, I, that I'm painting on with the book but again the main character of course is this wealthy fellow and uh, for me it was uh, that was the obstacle course how do I how do I make him if not appealing and I, th- I do think he's appealing on a certain level but but if 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 not appealing how do I make him fascinating to the point where a reader is going to really want to go on this ride? And that was the challenge, and I think I succeeded. And from what I've seen, the reviews have been great on it. Yeah, I've, got, I've been very lucky. I've got some amazing reviews. And there was, you know, there was one in the Wall Street Journal last week that was incredible. It was like my mother came back from heaven and wrote it herself. <laughs> it was remarkable, actually. And that, that's a great thing to get. And those kind of things, hopefully, you know, people read them and they buy the book and they talk about it. And it's, uh, you know, it's a process when you get your work out there and you want it to have a long life. When uh, when did when did you do the final draft of the book before you sent it to edit? And- uh, the final draft was done in September of 2017, and I was I was really working the deadline because I was leaving the country for a month, and I knew I wouldn't when I left I couldn't change a comma, right. basically, and uh, so I did the last six weeks I did. Boy, it was, uh, you know, I, I, I did a lot. I, this book had about 20 drafts, but I did a foren- several forensic edits the summer before I left. From, from July, August, September, uh, I, did, I did three line edits. And I should say the book is, uh, I think, 614 pages long. So when you're, when you're doing a line edit on that length of a book and you're doing it multiple times, I said to myself many times, this is the last book I'm ever writing. Which, of course, it's not. You're on something else. Yes, I'm, I'm on a new project, and I've actually, uh, I'm, I'm coming in for the landing on the new project, actually. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh. 
um, I want to I want to see that go. I, I want to see the better writer who has uh, longer experience in writing when that book comes out. Well, is there a date on the publish on that or no? No, 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 no. I you know I sell all my books when they're written. So so I never I never do a deal prior to yeah. having written the book. I write the book and then I give it to my agent. Then he sells the book. Okay. And um, and then blurb wise, I, I I don't know if it's been the last two books, but Larry David's blurb the last two books. Um, how do you do? You, how do you get a Larry David blurb? Not for my personal experience, just for the audience. You know, what if they want one? He's, he's a friend of mine from before he was world famous. So you know, I've known Larry since the '80s, and uh, yeah, yeah, and uh, it's it's an old friend. It's like you would ask an old friend from San Francisco. This this one just happens to be one that everybody knows. So did you see him do stand-up and stuff in those years? Sure. Yeah, I saw him do stand-up in the late seventies. Actually, when I moved to New York, before I knew him, and then we got to know each other in the in the mid eighties, I think, and, and we've been friends ever since. And weren't you? Uh, I. I'm trying to remember our conversation from 14 years ago because it's you know I have a pornographic memory. Um, weren't, weren't you writing jokes for write, uh, for comedians? In those yeah, I, yeah. I started out as a joke writer in 1980. I got out of film school in 1981 and I started writing jokes to make money. And I wrote for Richard Belzer. I sold some jokes to Joan Rivers, and then I got work writing sitcoms. I did that for a couple of years. Yeah. Yeah. And I, when, when I was a kid. So. Uh -huh. Yeah. That's awesome, and then, um, and th and then you you worked on Big Love for a while. Um, yeah. I did two years writing about a crazy Mormon family, and uh, after doing that, I wanted to write about a crazy Jewish family, and that's why I wrote The Hazards of Good Fortune. And uh, is there an option on? Uh, I I don't want I shouldn't even ask, right? Or do you ask? I never know if I should ask. No, that's fine to ask. I unlike my other books, all of which I sold to Hollywood prior to publication, I did not make this available. This book, this book has not been offered for sale, and I may, I may make it available at some point. But right now, it's not available for sale to Hollywood. Would it be? Um, do you know why? Yeah, I do actually. <laughs> because I you tease. Because I can't take the heartbreak. Um, when you say the heartbreak, do you mean of being in development for so long? Yeah, I'm nodding my head, but yeah, exactly. Uh, my last book, I Regret Everything, actually looks like it might be getting made. I've, I've adapted all of them myself. I've adapted the bones, and except Shining City. Shining City, I sold to Warner Brothers, and they hired a bunch of writers, none of whom could make it happen. And uh, I adapted uh, The Angry Buddhist, and I Regret Everything has a director attached, and there's money, and they need a star, and... Uh, I wrote the screenplay, and hopefully that one's going to get made. So maybe that'll that'll change my Hollywood luck. I feel like you've had Hollywood luck more well, than if we measure luck by selling the rights to the books. Yeah, I have had a little Hollywood luck. Um, also, with uh, with this book, do you feel like it's you put so much effort into it, where it would be? Um, I mean, it would almost be an insult if you didn't have a hand in the film writing process. Is, is there is there wanting to? maybe be in a little more control? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. It's, it's hard to let go. I mean, and, and for this thing, if I do it, I suppose I would have to write it. It would be very hard to let these characters go, I think. But in the meantime, you know, as I said, I'm working on another manuscript and I'm writing another book and I'm not really thinking too much about Hollywood right. at this point. I, I, need, I need to get through the, 
the publishing portion of it because having having sold all of my books to Hollywood already, the glamour of it is not new to me. So I don't crave that the way that I did when I was uh, first doing this, when it was the biggest thrill in the world, as as you can imagine. It's not that I'm jaded or anything, but honestly, when I say I can't deal with the heartbreak, I'm actually only being semi-ironic, really, because it's it's disappointing when you get your hopes up that they're going to make a movie or make a television show, and then it doesn't happen. I mean, I, I found out the same way how kind of disappointing everything is, but at the same time, I'm so lucky that a film came out from no, exactly. my book. Well, you know, when Confessions of a Teenage Jesus jerk got made, that's an amazing thing. I mean, you cleared an incredible hurdle. You actually got something made as an author, turned into a film. And the way I view films for guys like us is that they're trailers for the book. You know, I mean, your Teenage Jesus movie is, you know, you, you've got a two-hour trailer for the novel. And people, if people dig the movie, they'll read the book. And, you know, that's how I look at all my projects. And I think, God, it would be great to get one made only because it would hit people to the books. And I, I do totally masturbate online. And I, uh, <laughs> I, I look up to see what people are talking about, you know. And they're, every once in a while they're like, you know this was made from a book. And they're like, what, are you kidding? And it's, yeah, it's hilarious. I mean, because, well, people these days, people apprehend film and TV as if it's the only thing there is. And I think, I think novelists who, are, you know, who write the kind of stuff that we do, we're becoming more and more like poets every day. I mean, you know, the, the problem we face is the who gives a shit syndrome really but you know we do it because we love it and it's a form that we find great satisfaction and so we keep going and if we can sell the books to hollywood to make some money well that's you know obviously that's a great thing and it makes the uh the, the being ignored by the larger world part a little less painful yeah my problem was um i didn't make money but i was on set every day consulted and i'm totally happy with the final cut which i know is a rare thing no right exactly and you got you got to watch actors say lines that you wrote oh, and it's you know, it's incredibly thrilling because, you know, I've had a bunch of plays produced. And for me, one of my most, perhaps the most satisfaction I've had as a professional in any area, and that's novels and TV and movies, is watching from the audience when a play of mine is on stage. There's nothing like it. It's incredible. And if you write comedy and the audience is laughing, it's like orgasms every 30 seconds, really. I mean, it's just, it's an incredible thing. So to be on the set watching actors do your thing, it's... It's, it's joyful, really. And, you know, if we, can, if we can extract some joy from this process that causes us really so much brain-wracking aggravation and heartache, it's incumbent upon us to do that, isn't it? I, so I got to watch it a few times with audiences. And, um, and then I couldn't watch it anymore. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> but there was... I was waiting for I was waiting for the jokes to land. I was I was like sitting there. I had my fist up. I'm like, come on, come on, and they would land. I'd be like, okay. It was almost like I was a stand-up comic, but I couldn't change anything about it to the audience. Well, you know, you describe an amazing process because I remember the first time I watched a comedy I had written on stage, and just just waiting for the laughs because the laughs were this unbelievable sugar high. And it was, it was an amazing thing because, you know, I knew the story backwards and forwards. I knew the performances. So it was interesting to watch the actors exercise their craft. But for me, the juice was literally the laughs because they're, they're adrenaline shots. And it's an incredible thing. And one of the things about novel writing, and, I, and there's a lot about it that I love, but one of the things about it that I really don't like at all is you can't, you can't watch people read your books. Right. You know, and that's, uh, well, I guess we just have to deal with that. 
Or we could set up an app where the author can... <laughs> That's right. Why hasn't someone done that? Yeah, we, I, we'll go 50-50 on that That's, one. I love that idea. What would it be called? Um, oh, it would be called... Uh, Ogle. Uh, Ogle? Ogle would be good, right? Ogling, yeah. Like an action type. Right, yeah. Um, in your bed with you. Oh, I like that. But that's kind of uh, maybe a little too uh, saucy. We'll, t- we'll talk about that off mic. <laughs> I thought of that actually when, because that, that you know when Jesus Church came out, I'm like, I'm in bed with so many women right now, but I'm not. <laughs> yeah, I love looking at it that way. I've actually never done that before, but now that you mention it, yeah, after you get divorced and like yeah. the women, uh, then, then, then you start thinking. Med- metaphors abound. <laughs> Oh, man, Seth, it was so great to talk to you about this. Tony, thanks for having me on. This was a pleasure. Seth Greenland on Drinks with Tony. The book is The Hazards of Good Fortune. Coming up now is an interview from the archives from 2015 I did with John Ronson and his book, So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Thanks for listening. Yeah, because this is what we're doing now as humans, and it's what we've been doing, like bad jur- journalism has been this too, over the years. Like you turn somebody into, into this, one, this one moment of their life, and they get swallowed up by this one moment. And if you like, really think about the ramifications of that, of getting like defined by one moment in your life, I mean, I don't know about you, but that feels like, like profoundly inhuman to me. Uh, we are dimensional. I mean, maybe I've been in America too long to use words like dimensional, but we're a mix of stuff. Hi, I'm John Ronson, and you're listening to Drinks with Tony. Get on the Drinks with Tony show. Yeah. So, welcome to Drinks with Tony. I'm your host, Tony Duchesne, and we're here with John Ronson. His book is So You've Been Publicly Shamed. Hi, John. Hey, Tony. Nice to see you. Good to see you as well. Um, this this book is... I don't know if I feel bad about humanity more after reading this book. I don't know. How do, how do you deal with that? You know, for the first time with this book, I felt anxious. I really noticed this. Like, I've done real horror stories in the past. Uh, in my book, Them, I did a, 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 I interviewed... I spent time with this girl called Rachel Weaver whose mother and brother were killed by the FBI at Ruby Ridge. Um, they were like a family of white separate And you just felt so sorry for Rachel, you know? And, but I noticed, like, I'd, I'd, so when I was with her, I felt, like, deeply sorry. But another part of me just really loved being in Idaho, and it was, like, fun, and, and you know? And so I'd leave Rachel, just get, get back on with my life. And, and, but this time, for some reason, uh, the anxiety snaked its way in there I would meet people who had been ruined by social media and I suppose when I say ruined by social media I mean ruined by us and you know it got to me in a way that my other stories haven't so yeah I have got it's I mean it's a funny book but it's also a really panicky and anxiety inducing book getting inside these people's heads this is what it feels like it's like, it's like a horror movie. So, yeah, this, I, I would be lying if I said this was a blast to, to write. It wasn't. It, it, it was anxiety-inducing, you know, but in a good way because the anxiety now rubs off on, on the reader yeah. and, and makes it a sort of horror film. And, uh, yeah, even with uh, Justine uh, Stacco. Stacco story, yeah, and um, 
and uh, her tweet when she was on the flight to uh, South Africa. I remember that because I was part of that, and I was like, oh, my God, how terrible. You know, I just had that instant assumption of her through, you know. Right, right, right. Okay, so you were on Twitter that night that her tweet, like, overwhelmed everybody's timelines. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the tweet, it was, um, this woman had 170 Twitter followers, but, but that night, everybody read this tweet. Uh, going to Africa, hope I don't get AIDS. Just kidding, I'm white. So you were, were like lying in bed or whatever, or thinking, what a monster. Right, exactly. And then, and so that, that's what's uh, probably some of the anxiety is, oh man, I have bought into some of this stuff. And then now we get to see the three-dimensional person after just the one, the one faux pas or the, the one... Yeah, because this is what we're doing now as humans. And it's what we've been doing, like bad journ- journalism has been this too over the years. Like you turn somebody into, into this, one, this one moment of their life and they get swallowed up by this one moment. And if you like, really think about the ramifications of that, of getting like defined by one moment in your life. I mean, I don't know about you, but that feels like, like profoundly inhuman to me. Uh, we are dimensional. I mean, maybe I've been in America too long to use words like dimensional. But we're a mix of stuff. And yet, on social media, we are turning everybody into these monstrous caricatures and lives are getting ruined outside of the internet, like in real life. And also what I find interesting is if, I've, if people saw me at some of my worst moments... I that would be a horrible person to the whole world yeah. via social media. <laughs> we all would, which is why I so wanted to write this book because I wanted to kind of remind. Like, I wanted to say, you know, things have really changed, and people are only just beginning to talk about this change, and the change is horrendous. Like we, we're creating a kind of surveillance society where we are spying on on everybody everybody spying on everybody else looking for some sort of clue to that person's inherent evil but you know that's not true like every one of us is like fuck if they if that person knew that thing about me i would be fucked Uh (laughs) and you know i don't want that world i want a world where like okay i understand that was shitty but that bit of you is like good and you know it's, uh, that's the world that's the world I want yeah that world is getting further and further away and that's why I wanted to write this book I wanted people I wanted to remind people that we are dimensional and um, and being at the end of that is terrifying and if you want to know how terrifying it is you know, read the book and you can feel the terror yeah exactly especially um, and, and then the other story about the uh, just the the two uh, guys at the tech conference uh, joking about dongle and um, you know the, and that woman just went on uh, she seemed like she went off the rails but then the backlash of everyone they went off the rails even more it's yeah. crazy it, it was carnage everybody went off the rails these were two guys just just um, muttering a joke to each other um that big dongle, some stupid, you know, beavers and butthead type joke. The woman in front overhears it and takes a photograph and tweets the photograph with, like, not cool, you know, overheard dongle, you know. Um, jokes about dongles right behind me, you know, not cool. And so he was fired. And then when word got out, 
that this has happened, she was destroyed. It's like carnage everywhere. Everybody just destroyed everybody in this frenzy of, of what's called punching up. You know, this idea that we are attacking the privileged elite. Um, but actually... So she thought, in tweeting their picture, she was like showing, you know, the gender imbalance in the tech industry and, and how men are thoughtless. And so that was like writing a wrong. And then all these men were like, this is feminism out of control. So then they were writing a wrong. And it was all just carnage. Like nobody was, nobody was human and dimensional in right. that. Yeah. Yeah, it's that's it's it's essentially one dimensional. Yeah. <laughs> it's just yeah, absolutely. Uh, people becoming figments of other people's ideologies. And um, and I, I guess I'm using the word three dimensional of characters and stuff too, just because as um, when we're creating stories, we want all of our characters to be three dimensional. And then yes. so what you know now we're also humans, and that's even more. Yeah, exactly, exactly. We, you know, we are, like, when we see other people doing what we're doing, we find those people terrible. You know, we find Senator McCarthy terrible. And um, when we watch courtroom dramas, we don't like the evil prosecutor who's turning the three-dimensional person into the one-dimensional villain. You know, we are, who do we identify? We identify with Atticus Finch, the kind-hearted defence attorney. Yeah, give us the power and look at what we do. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's incredibly important. Um, it's incredibly important to remember that when we reduce somebody to this fragment of their life, it's not only profoundly traumatising and undemocratic, it's also, you know, conservative and conformist it's it's everything we don't want society to be. Yeah. Um. How how did you get your start in uh, in writing and journalism? I know you're on uh, doing This American Life now, and yeah. how, how did you how did you start out in your uh, in your career and on this path? Um. When I when I was at college, I went to journalism college. When I was 16, I I interned at the local radio station in Cardiff, which is the capital of Wales. Um. And yeah, these sort of DJs, these outrageous DJs, and I hung out with them, and that was cool. And then I went to journalism college, I started writing for the college magazine, and my teacher, David Cardiff, said to me that I was the only person on the college magazine who knew how to write, and that was like encouraging, um, more than encouraging. I guess that was like, well, I guess that's what I better do then. And then I moved to Manchester to play in bands and to work with bands. Eventually, like years later, I wrote a movie about that time called Frank, starring Michael Fassbender. That was about, uh, I co-wrote it with a brilliant writer called Peter Strawn. And that was about um, my time working with bands and stuff. But I was never cut out for the music industry. Uh, and a lot of the bands I was working with would write for the local magazine to make money, you know, to sort of just pay the rent. So I started doing that. And, you know, people just kept asking me to write. And, and um, so I ended up getting a column in, in Time Out magazine, really young, like early 20s, which was a big deal back then to have your own column in Time Out. That's about as good as it got in, in my type of writing. You know, Huntress Thompson had a column in Time Out and P.G. O'Rourke, I think P.G. O'Rourke, um, Julie Birchall, you know, really important writers. Um, so I started doing that. And then everything just came from that, like... 
I've got offers of work just from that and then I've always been in work shit <laughs> I mean, the, I'm, I'm, I'm glad but it worries me I mean it worries me because there's a very fine line in this world between success and failure well and um, what's interesting about getting the column is that's probably well now I'm assuming but um, that could have been where you really got your chops as a journalist as well as a storyteller is, is that would that be the case or yeah 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 absolutely um, over here by the way what happened was two people really kind of championed me over here completely like just out of the goodness of their hearts I mean I didn't know them and one of them was uh, John Hodgman uh, the comedian and writer and the other was Sarah Vowell the writer okay. and they both said to this American life you know you've got to you've got to get this guy on and they both said it to John Stewart on the Daily Show and um, that's you know I think between the Daily Show and this American life that's kind of how I and some movies that were made from my books like The Many Stoic Goats I suppose yeah but um, that's sort of how I got a name in America and then through This American Life I got to know like Gimlet Media who I think is a really interesting new podcast company um, yeah but it was really it all goes back to Sarah Val and John Hodgman what lovely people to just take me on like that and, and so you're from Cardiff, so do you know about the Temporal Riff? Uh, no. <laughs> I'm talking about like uh, Doctor Who and Torchwood. Oh, yes, but no. But what I will say is that my mother, my parents own like a building in Cardiff, uh, in, a, in a square called Mount Stewart Square. And apparently, I never watch Torchwood or Doctor Who, but apparently on many occasions you will see Cybermen climbing her fire escape and... <laughs> <laughs> so my mother's building is like constantly in Doctor Who and Torchwood. Oh, that's funny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know. <laughs> but no, I've never watched it. I've never watched it. But it's all. But I know all the places where it's filmed. And uh -huh. the Cardiff. Um, I don't know if it's still the case, but for a while Cardiff had like a great BBC drama department, um, and uh, the BBC really made an effort um, to decentralise. Like, everything was in London. And now, like, some of the most interesting stuff is in Bristol and Cardiff and Manchester. And at the time, people were really complaining, like, because everybody had to leave London. Like, if you wanted to keep working for the BBC, you had to move to, like, Cardiff or, or Manchester. Um, and now, it's, I think it's really, you know, 10, 15 years later, it's proven to be a really successful thing. Like, it's, it's made, like, Britain um, provide us to the BBC and not just London. It, it was a really good thing to happen. Uh, what do you call it? It's spread the the yeah, the culture is spread out instead of centralized. Yeah. Is that, is that the yeah, that's exactly what happened. It's it's and it's it's really it's really positive. It's like before, you know, if you wanted to work in the media in Britain, you kind of in the mainstream national media, you had to work in London, and then you know, so all these people were sort of getting lost. You know, people who didn't want to move to London were getting lost, and now those people are have been found um, and it's good it's positive what um and then what brought you to America was it through uh, the the this is American life or what, what was that uh? no, we just like we were living in a part of London that we didn't love it was kind of a countryside -y and kind of old like old people it was, a, it was about a London called Highgate and I and, you know I noticed that we would just kind of be um, looking at trees and <laughs> thinking, what now? <laughs> um, the trees were beautiful, 
but I didn't want to look at trees. I want to look at people. So, so we decided to move. And then for some reason, you know, we didn't really think it out much, but for some reason we thought instead of moving to like central London, let's move to New York for a while. Yeah. And that was like nearly three years ago. Uh, yeah, I've been in New York for like nearly three years. One of the great privileges, true privilege of living in New York is the fact that I can get on a plane and be here in Los Angeles in like five hours. And in the old days, it would take like 12, 14 hours to get to LA. And each time I did it, it felt like such a kind of magical treat. I still hold that about LA. It, like coming here feels like magical. And now I can come to LA once a month and I do pretty much. Yeah. Yeah. Oh. Uh, just, you know, for stories and sometimes even just to hang out and go like hiking or something. Uh, yeah, uh, you had one of your um, interviews in the book in Runyon Canyon, you hiked. Yeah, yeah, I go to Runyon Canyon. I said this to my son yesterday, actually, we went hiking on Runyon Canyon, and I said to my son, like, I'm 47. If you told me now, like, what's your, if you asked me now, what's your favourite thing in the world, like, you've done all this different shit, what is the thing you like most in the world? I think my answer would be hiking on Runyon Canyon. I'm running on, like, especially because I like, I like not having a choice. Like when you go to Griffith Park, you can go this way or that way, or that kind of freaks me out. It's like, what am I missing out on? You know, am I, am I on the good hike? Am I on the bad hike? Am I missing out on it? I get anxious. When you go to Runyon, it's kind of one way to go. And, I, you know, I, that's, I find it comforting. Also, it's about, it's maybe a little too short. I, I, I wish they would add. I'm going to, in fact, ask them to add a couple of mountains. <laughs> yeah, I, that's easy. That's easy enough to do. Do, um, do you have a lot of anxiety making other decisions too, if there's too many decisions? Uh, well, I do have anxiety. Um, it doesn't really manifest itself that way. I, I have anxi- I'm having anxiety now. I'm having an anxiety attack now. Because, yeah, because I know that my son is um, out on sunset and part of me is talking to you and part of me is worried he's been run over. Um, and I mean, we laugh, but it's haunting. <laughs> So, um, so yeah, so I, I do suffer anxiety, but usually it's not about which way to hike. Although, obviously, a bit because I've got to run in the center of Griffith Park. How do you deal with, um, like, with anxiety, like going on the Daily Show? Is that like a different kind of anxiety or doing TV? And stuff? You know, funnily, that kind of doesn't bother me anywhere near as much. I mean, I get nervous before going on the Daily Show. Um, I don't get nervous for going on stage, weirdly. I think it's just been, um, you know, people laugh and like, like it. And most authors are really bad doing, being on stage. Yeah. And I'm not. And so it doesn't feel nerve-wracking to me, thank God. Because imagine, you know, I've probably done like a thousand live talks, maybe even more. And so imagine if you got anxious each time. Um, but no, I feel fine about that. No, my anxiety manifests itself in two ways. One is the way it's manifesting itself right now, which is, has my son been run over? And two, um, is something wrong? Like with this book, like, have I made a mistake? Have I misquoted somebody? Like, is it all going to explode? And that's never happened. I mean, there's a few people who are dissatisfied with the way I've written about them, but a tiny, tiny minority compared to the people, you know, who are either happy or haven't complained, you know. um, But still, that's that's a real anxiety. Probably the reason why 
nothing bad's ever happened to me is because I do have such anxiety about it. You know, maybe if Joan Alera, who's one of the people in my book, had had more anxiety, he wouldn't have got into the trouble that he'd gone into. Right. That yeah. was the uh, fake, fake Bob Dylan quotes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, exactly. You know, anxiety, I read about this in my book, The Psychopath Test, too. You know, anxiety is what keeps us sane and rational and um, um, good, moral. Yeah. No, not rational or sane. Anxiety keeps us moral um, because, you know, um, you don't want to transgress because you don't want to feel scared or guilty or remorseful. Those are painful feelings, so you don't transgress. Psychopaths don't have those painful feelings, and so there's no reason to not transgress. Yeah. Yeah. And, and then, yeah, when you mentioned the other thing, like, because the book is out, so... Yeah, it's it, now it's in everybody else's hands, so I can understand the anxiety of a nonfiction book, where it's just like, did yeah. I get everything right? Yeah, in the weeks before a book coming out, you, really, I worry a lot about that. I worried about it before the psychopath test. I worried about it before this one, um, but I don't, I'm not worried now because the book's out, and you know, and, and I know it's all fine. It's irrational. Yeah. And um, what are you do? Are you working on another book now, or do you have something in mind? A couple of screenplays. Um, I'm writing a screenplay with um, a South Korean director, Bong, who made Snowpiercer. Yeah, so I'm working with him. That's my immediate next job. Is that I'm rewriting a film for him. Uh, I should say I'm saying that like blasé, but this is the first time. Um, I've ever been asked to do this kind of thing. Like I co-wrote a film with my friend Peter Strawn, which ended up being made with Michael Fassbender called Frank. But this is the first time that I've ever been asked to rewrite a screenplay. Um, and I'm about to start it like in the next couple of days. I'm going to start work on it. And um, um, so that's really exciting. And also I've got an amazing idea for a, for a film that I'm going to write on spec. Um, I don't see the need to get it commissioned. It's like I write it. And then if people like it, it'll get made. And if people don't, then it won't. Yeah. Um, and how, how did you get into uh, screenwriting for Frank? The... Um, it was Peter. Um, he wrote the screenplay for The Men's Goats. And he's one of those rare screenwriters who anything he wants to do, I mean, he's loved. Uh, and anything he wants to do will get made. Not necessarily get filmed, but certainly people will, would pay him to write a screenplay. Like, you know... Um, and he's incredibly like A-list now so Wolf Hall which just started on C- on PBS over here uh, was written by him and uh, The Goldfinch the Donna Tartt book has been written by him um, and um, uh, and it was his idea I wrote this piece for The Guardian about a um, sort of little memoir about being in this band in the 80s and Peter said I think that would make a movie and, and so I kind of pragmatically thought you know, I know that anything Peter wants to do will happen. So I, I hitched, I hitched up with him, and uh, and we did it. And I loved it for the first couple of years. It was really hard. I didn't know how to write a screenplay, and I, yeah. And now I feel really confident. Well, never totally confident because it's fiction, and there's always a leap of faith. But but I kind of learned at Peter's feet how to do it, and and that's yeah, that's how it was all Peter. It's all Peter. And how interesting it is. Um from screenplay, uh, I don't know. Uh, I don't know if you were on set and how you see it, and then what the final cut of the film is—the yeah. the metamorphosis of 
how it moves. Oh, amazing. And also between screenplays, actually. Um, you know, between draft one, two, three, four, and five of the screenplay, it, it metamorphosizes like each time. And then, yeah, it metamorphosizes again on the set, and then again at the rough edit, you know, rough assembly, and then again at a rough cut. So, you know, each film is made and remade probably like, I don't know, 20 times. And, I mean, yeah. Uh, and it is, it's fascinating. It's amazing to me how that happens. Um, yeah, it's amazing to me. You're right. Yeah. Cool. Um, yeah, I think we got, I, I think we got on the last end. I'm worried about your son now. Yeah, I'm gonna, let me just phone him. He phoned me 11 minutes ago, so we know 11 minutes ago he was alive. <laughs> Believe me, I laugh and I know how crazy it is. But any, everybody with anxiety knows how crazy it is. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, I laugh because I understand. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> What's happening?